I am beginning a two-part series today called The Beauty of Jesus. We had a, I don't know if we have a slide, but whatever they sent you in the email was a really cool picture. So if y'all have that and want to put that up, that would be awesome. Um, but um, what we're doing this over these next two weeks is we're talking about Jesus, um, but uh, particularly in relationship to uh, his, his humanity and his divinity. And I've talked about this before, and we've done we've we've preached on this before, but I hope to bring a few different nuances to it right now. But the beauty of Jesus, Isaiah four two. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Psalm forty five one to two. My heart overflows with a beautiful theme. I will recite a lovely poem about the King. You are fairer than the sons of men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him. And that, Lord, he became as one of us and he took on flesh forever. And that he condemned sin in the flesh forever. Lord, I ask that you would release a spirit of wisdom and revelation over us today. That you would fascinate our hearts with the beauty and the glory of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, when I talk about the beauty of Jesus, I use this word very particularly. First of all, because this is the word that the scriptures use. That when we lay hold of the beauty of God, that it produces in us a response of worship. There is a movement of worship that God is raising up in the earth. Isaiah prophesied that I would cause righteousness and praise to spring up in the nations. What we are doing on this stage, what we are doing as a community, as we lift our hands and we give worship to God, that we're actually participating in his beauty, his glory, but also in this end time move towards the beauty and the glory of God that is going to shake the nations, that's going to drive Satan off of the earth and it's going to set people free from his bondage. And friends, we're tapping into a place of eternity where we will forever be gazing at God and we will forever be responding out of that revelation of his beauty and offering him praise and thanksgiving. Worship is a response of the beauty and the glory of God. Worship comes from the word worth, worth worth-ship. That we be, when we begin to gain revelation of the worthiness of Christ, not just declaring it because it's words in a song, but actually seeing, beholding, and gaining understanding of the majesty of Jesus, it produces that response of worship. And Jesus loves our worship. He loves when our heart overflows with the beautiful theme to sing a song of love. Okay, so two-part series on the beauty of Jesus. This, uh, we have Jesus as a man. So this week I've, I've titled this, The Beauty of Jesus, the Son of Mary. And then next week we'll be talking about Jesus, the Son of God. Now what's really important to know is that this is the same Jesus, and it's very difficult to talk about just his humanity or just his divinity because the two are so interconnected in this one person, Jesus Christ. 
And the church has spent centuries and centuries learning to give language to the beauty of this reality of divinity and humanity, the fullness of both inside of one human being, Jesus Christ. I want to read to you a creed that is read in many of the mainline denominations, Catholicism, Episcopal, Lutheran, uh, Methodist, and the like. Some of you may have grown up reading these very words uh, for what we've called today the Nicene Creed. Um, And I'm actually going to read from a translation that's more straight from the Greek and the Latin that, that we saw in, that was written originally in 381. So I'll read that to you, just part of it, not the whole thing. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God generated from the Father before all ages, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and women, and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and became flesh from the Virgin, from from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, too, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and to his kingdom there will be no end. Amen. There's actually more there on the Holy Spirit, which we will not talk about today, but um, this, the purpose of these sermons is not to establish that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's taking those for granted because we've had that in our faith for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's rather to reflect on, to contemplate, to muse, to gain fascination with the glory of these realities and to discuss what they mean for us. Because when we start talking about Jesus Christ as a man, it makes God much, much more approachable. And it has massive implications when it comes to redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and being called sons of God made in the righteousness of Christ. So, Jesus, he's one person with two natures. One person two natures. Say that with me. One person, two natures. Very good. Fully God, fully man. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overpower it. Verse 10, he came into the very world he created, but the world did not recognize him. 
He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from the human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became flesh and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son, this Jesus. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the Word. Jesus Christ is wisdom incarnate, that God became a man. Friends, this is massive (laughs) when we make declarations like this. And the reason I read to you this creed from the fourth century is because I want to at least give us a little bit of appreciation for what was at stake whenever they started making these claims about the Son of God. Not that they started, but they were just giving language to what the church was already believing and what was part of their worship. There was huge controversy. It took 60 years to nail down these words in a way that was acceptable to the church at large. And men were put in prison. Men were exiled for these truths that I just read to you. God came in the flesh, became a human being. This is offensive. It's offensive to the Greek mind. It's offensive to the Jewish mind. The Greeks at that time, and we still see this today. That's why I'm talking about this. Some of you, not a fan of history. And you're like, ah, here he goes with history. Hated history. I love history. Um, But this is so important because what we see, the arguments that were happening in the fourth century, friends, they're happening in the seminaries today. They're happening in the scholarly realm today. They're happening in the church today. And we've got to lay hold of and be grounded in the truth so that we can stand when these come against us. The Greeks, the Greeks had this tendency to view God as wholly transcendent and distant, wholly other than humanity. And so when you say that God became a man, it's absolute foolishness to the Greeks because they separated spirit and matter. That spirit is good. God is good. The uncreated, transcendent God. He is holy. He is pure. But matter, flesh, food, drink, life as we know it, everything that we enjoy about being human beings, they put these on an extremely low level, even to the point of them being sinful and evil altogether. Some even created this doctrine that another separate God had created the material realm while the one true good God created the spiritual realm. And the fact that the two would be united into one was completely preposterous. How could God become a man? How could God hunger and thirst? How could God suffer and die? How could God be buried in the grave? Completely offensive to the Greeks. John wrote against such heresies that were spreading, even in the first century church. 
where people would not acknowledge that Jesus Christ was a complete, full human being because they could not accept that God would enter into human nature, which they considered evil. And John said these words very boldly in his first letter, not the gospel, but the smaller letter. He said, anyone that does not acknowledge that the Son of God came in the flesh is the Antichrist. It's how you know you're sitting in front of a false teacher. If someone does not acknowledge the full humanity of Jesus. This was very important. To the Jews, it's offensive because they, they worshiped God. Um, they believed in a transcendent God and still do, but they didn't have so much problem with matter. They didn't have a problem believing that God was going to set up his kingdom on a physical earth for all of eternity. They had no problem believing that a human Messiah was going to come and set them free from the Gentile nations and reestablish the kingdom from Jerusalem. And there's much that we as Gentiles need to gain from that understanding because that is the mindset that Jesus and his followers walked in their entire lives. But it's offensive to a Jew because what the early church began doing and that we continue to do to this day is we began to offer worship to this man. And it completely defied the very heart of Judaism. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make none in my image. You shall not bow down and worship them. But friends, he's more than a man. He's God. The Greeks look for wisdom. The Jews look for powerful signs. But we preach Christ, the wisdom of God. Christ the power of God. For the message of the cross, the message of the one who suffered and died for us, it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. The message I'm preaching to you is power of salvation to set you free from sin and death, to set you free from sickness and depression and anxiety and all the chains of Satan that he's tried to destroy your life with. This message of Jesus Christ, the human being, crucified on the cross and having his blood spilled out for humanity is for your salvation. Very good news. We just took communion. Um, communion reminds us that Jesus is a man. Our theological term for God becoming man, we call the incarnation. God became flesh. And when we take this bread, when we take this cup and we release a prayer over it, Power is released to where we can actually engage in doing what Jesus, to a Jewish mind, was completely uh, blasphemous, was eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And he said, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in you. That there's something very important about Jesus being a man. We'll talk more about communion next week. But it reminds us that he gave his life for those that he loves. God took on humanity. 
God took on the human experience. This is a demonstration of the perfect humility and his committed self-sacrificing love for humanity. I believe that one of the, the thing that prevents us from engaging and encountering God more than anything is pride. That um, we, when we think of ourselves more highly than we should, um, that when we drive to our Holy Spirit, Holy Roland, charismatic, tongue-talking, body-healing, prophesying, glorifying, worship-giving, laughing, falling, dancing, shouting, Pentecostal glory church. Oh, God, we love the glory. Oh, and we pass by that Methodist church, and oh, Lord. Mm. Too bad for those Methodists. Too bad for those Catholics. Their robes and their, their, their chalices and their gold and their stained glass windows, but they don't have the Pentecostal glory of God. Good thing I'm part of the true church. Pride. And I see it on the other end. I grew up Episcopalian. How many Episcopals we got in here? Okay. Yes, come on. You know, the, the Episcopal church was the first denominational church that the Pentecostal move in the early 20th century first touched, that first received it. The Episcopal church. Who would have thought? <laughs> Pride. <laughs> <laughs> Cried. <laughs> okay, I repent. Um, you should too. Uh, um, but in my Episcopal church attending days, I still believe I'm one in my heart. <laughs> um, but uh, there was just this arrogance about churches that lifted their hands, about churches that spoke in tongues, about churches that, 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 that when the bodies hit the floor, <laughs> and that I was part of a church that was rooted in the church fathers of the second, third, and fourth centuries. And that all these splintered wannabes need to try harder. Pride. Pride. Friends, we need the Episcopal, Episcopalians. We need the Catholics. We need the Methodists. 
We need them all, and they need us. And I believe God is setting me as this bridge to bring in the, the beauty and the richness of the history of these mainline denominations and the, and the value of theology, of biblical study, of reason into the church. And then, on the other hand, to bring in what this Pentecostal, charismatic, crazy glory that has changed my life more than anything and filter it into these churches. Because we have been baptized into one body. And we need each other. The perfect demonstration of humility is Jesus, the Son of God, becoming a man. Philippians 2. Keep this attitude among yourselves. That he, who being in the form of God, took the form of a slave and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself for us. And we are called to empty ourselves for one another. Jesus, fully man. God, who created the heavens and the earth. That God, who spoke into being all of creation. That God, whose spirit hovered over the waters of Genesis 1 and said, let there be light, let there be land, let there be mountains, let there be animals, let there be plants, let there be humans, let there be Adam, and he breathed his spirit into dust. That God came and entered the womb of a young Jewish girl. She was young, she was scared, And for a time, she was alone. And God put himself inside of a womb. Let's remember our womb days, everybody. It was great being in the womb, wasn't it? <laughs> You're in a very comfortable little position. <laughs> you had this big belly around you to protect you. <laughs> I believe pregnant women are beautiful. <laughs> and yet all your needs met. Um, Jesus was a fetus. Jesus was a baby. Inside of a womb. He 
he submitted himself, the God who created everything, upon, who is the source of all life, upon whom all things depend, from whom all blessings flow, the fountain of life, became completely dependent on a scared Jewish girl and her husband, Joseph. That Jesus was an infant and a toddler. That God, who spoke creation into being, had to learn how to speak. That God, who walked in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, had to learn how to walk. That the one whose name is the word, the logos is the Greek, can also be translated wisdom or reason. The one who is wisdom and reason itself had to grow in wisdom and stature. Somebody had to wipe Jesus' butt. Jesus pooped every day. Am I offending some Greek minds in here right now? God created things and he said they were good. Pooping is good for you. In fact, if you're not, there's probably something wrong and you should go get that checked. We'll pray for you too. Just... Take a little, pray, we'll pray for you close to the bathroom, just in case you get healed. <laughs> okay, enough of that. <laughs> he was completely dependent. Friends, God is not so God. He's not so farther away. He didn't mind being messy. He didn't mind entering into human nature and experience. Which, as you know, as human beings, gets a little messy sometimes. In many ways. Jesus was a teenager. He experienced puberty. He went through hormonal changes. He went through sexual temptation. He was tempted in every way. The one who spoke all matter and creation into being, the one who made the trees, the one who made the giant sequoia trees in California. Has anyone seen them? They're huge. I saw them last summer. 
And I was really afraid I was going to be disappointed because I heard great things about them. And I hate when my expectations are really high and <laughs> then they're not met. And I was like, <laughs> but then I get there and, and we see, you know, the first round of trees as we're going up the mountain. It's, 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 um, it's, uh, they're, they're kind of cool. They're kind of impressive. Um, and I'm like, if this is it, I'm going to be really upset. We drove five hours or so to get here <laughs> after flying from Dallas. <laughs> um, but then we started to go up and up the mountain. Friends, there was a tree that was over 30 feet in diameter. You could drive a car through it. You could drive more than one car through it. Um, I stood in front of this tree. And took as big a picture as you could, um, which I don't have on me. But uh, this massive tree. And I was like, "This, these are the trees of Lothlorien. <laughs> it's my Lord of the Rings reference for the day. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, please go watch Fellowship of the Ring today. <laughs> and have your life changed forever. No, God really speaks to those movies. The first three. The Hobbit, eh, maybe. But Lord of the Rings definitely speaks through those. <laughs> God made that tree. God built the universe. God carved out the galaxy. And he was taught the trade of carpentry by his father. The builder of the universe learned to build tables and chairs, to work with his hands, to sweat, to get dirty, to bleed, to hit his thumb with the nail and say, <clears throat> getting really close, father. <laughs> Almost blew it right there. That whole new no sin part just almost ruined it, but we made it. I love the movie The Passion of the Christ. Because you really see the humanity of Jesus in that movie. I love the scene where he's just built his taller table and he has his mother Mary coming and sitting at the table and she doesn't really know what to do because he hadn't built the chairs yet. Um, if you've seen it, you know which scene I'm talking about. If not, watch that movie too. Probably after Fellowship of the Ring though because it's kind of a downer. Um, <laughs> until the very end. <laughs> but he's, his mother is sitting at a table that he made with his bare hands with his sweat, with his tears, with his near-curse words. Um, the God who created all the cattle and plants and food for humanity to enjoy became hungry and had to be fed daily. 
the one who created the, the river in the Garden of Eden that spread out and, and watered the entire, um, the entire garden, the one that, that out of whom in Revelation it says the river of God flows out of the throne of God and the Lamb. It is the river that spreads across the entire city of the New Jerusalem that is, measures 1,500 feet high, long, and wide. This man out of whom living water flows became thirsty. The one from whom all fatherhood is derived, Ephesians 3, 15. Had to see his father Joseph die. Grieved over the death of his cousin, John the Baptist, over his friend, Lazarus. The, 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 the God who brings joy, who is the source of eternal life and joy, wept. He laughed. Jesus enjoys jokes. It says in Scripture that he uh, he was filled with the Spirit, and he uh, at, at, when the disciples went out and they began preaching the kingdom and healing the sick and casting out demons, and and they came back, and he it said he rejoiced in the Spirit. He rejoiced in the Spirit. What does that look like for Jesus to, God, this is so awesome. (laughs) He's happy, God. He's glad, Dad. (laughs) He's a good, happy, pappy father that loves to laugh. God loves to laugh. He experiences joy. He smiled. He smiles. He has a real smile. And when, when someone smiles, they're so much more approachable, aren't they? Which prayer leader do you want to come up for prayer for at the end? This one? <sighs> yeah, Lord bless them. Okay, amen. Or, hi, how are you? How can I pray for you? Can I get you anything? Do you need anything? Let's pray. I'm coming to that guy. Prayer team, smile. (laughs) Greeters, smile. Children's workers, for God's sake, please smile at these kids. <laughs> I know you're tired, <laughs> but if you just smile at them and look them in the eye for like 10 seconds, you'll be their best friend immediately, I promise. That's <laughs> all they want. Someone to acknowledge them. Um, he smiles. And, and then speaking of children, this Jesus, he had kids running up to him, holding him, holding God. That God let himself be tackled by children. You know, what's 
what's so important about this reality of the humanity of Jesus and the flesh of Jesus is that that God who seemed really distant became very tangible. He could be touched. He could be seen. He could be heard. He could be felt. 1 John 1, this is the one whom we have seen with our eyes, whom we have touched with our hands. Just drives a stake through that offense to the Greek mind. That God, the holy other than, would ever touch evil, wicked human matter. No, friends. God created our bodies and called them good. Your human body, the face that you see in the mirror every morning, he said, it is good. It is so good that I will take on one very much like it. It will share in the complete likeness of it. And not only will I take on flesh of my own, but I will redeem flesh of humanity that has been marred by sin, that has been affected by sickness and disease, and that has been broken with shame. That God in the flesh would lay his hands on those that no one wanted to touch because they were too sick. They were too sinful. or They were unclean. But power came out of the hands of this man. And there was a healing in his gaze. that he could look an adulterous woman in the eye and say, I do not condemn you. That he could sit at a well with a woman of another race and it was socially unacceptable in his day who had been divorced five times. and offered her a drink of eternal life. He ate and drank with sinners, with prostitutes, with gamblers, with cheaters, with cussers, with gamblers, with people that had sinned over and over again, that were sexually broken, that were sexual uh, um, um, sinners, that that, that were... cast out of society, that were unclean, that were unwanted, that were unloved. And he sat in the midst of them and he ate and he drank. God ate and drank with the most unwanted, unlovely people. He suffered. Rejection. Abandonment. He was beaten physically. Jesus went through the trauma of physical abuse. 
He was shamed sexually as he was hung naked on an execution stake. All of his closest friends left him. He was beaten and killed by the ones that he came to save. God suffered in the flesh, in a human body, with a human mind. He suffered the psychological pain and trauma, very much like many of us in here have experienced. He died. God died in the flesh. The giver of life became obedient to the point of death. The one whose throne is in heaven, whom the heavens of the heavens cannot contain, made his home in a tomb and descended into the grave, descended into the heart of the earth and was buried. But he rose again in a human body. He ate and drank after he rose from the dead. That he kept the marks and the holes in his body and said, Thomas, come, put your finger in my hand and put your, put your hand in my side. That this is the one who is pierced but they rose in a human body and forever is seated at the right hand of the Father in a human body, right in the center of the presence of the Father forever. And he has become the forerunner who has passed through the heavens and has made a way for all of humanity to come and sit with him on his throne in the presence of the Father to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Jesus Christ is fully man forever. What does this mean? Galatians 4. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law that he might redeem those that were under the law. He would set us free and give us, grant us the adoption as sons. That he condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8.3. In his flesh, our sin was sent into the body of Jesus, our sickness into the body of Jesus, our emotional trauma into the mind of Christ as he cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? That he was, and I, and I, and I loved what Jeremy preached on that a couple of weeks ago. I don't believe that's Jesus saying, I feel abandoned by God. It was Jesus saying, I am representing the cry of humanity of feeling forsaken and abandoned, but yet he was overcoming it by submitting himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that even in our forsaken state that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He was buried, he descended in the grave, but he stole the keys of death and hell. 
death? Where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? For death has been swallowed up in victory, that the life of his divine nature consumed the power and principality of death. He rendered powerless him who had power over death, the devil, that he might set free those who were subject to slavery through the fear of death. I want to read an excerpt from St. Augustine, a 4th century bishop. He said, The true mediator of life revived his own dead flesh, has cast that dead spirit and the mediator of death, the devil, out of the spirits of those who believe in him. So now that one no longer reigns inside them, but only attacks them from the outside without being able to overthrow them overthrow them. The chains of many sins and many deaths were broken by the one death of one man, which no sin had preceded. By his death, he offered for us the one truest possible sacrifice and thereby purged, abolished, and destroyed forever. Whatever there was of guilt for which the principalities and powers had a right to hold us bound to the payment of that penalty. Friends, Jesus became the mediator. He is fully God, fully man, stood in between God, stood in between man. He was God drawing near to mankind, taking on our flesh, taking on a human mind, taking on a human soul, and receiving all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our pain, all of our sickness, nailing it to a cross, and releasing his life and righteousness to all of mankind. And he can sympathize with us in our weakness. Worship team, I want you to come on up. There are very powerful truths related to the humanity of Jesus that are so integral when it comes to our salvation, our standing before God, what he accomplished at the cross. But friends, his life as a human being makes him both relatable and approachable. It makes him sympathetic to our weaknesses. Hebrews 2.18, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested, when we are being tempted. He understands our weaknesses, Hebrews 4.15. For he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So, Let us come boldly. Let us come boldly. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Friends, God is not so distant. God is not so impatient. God is not so unrelatable, unapproachable as we imagined him. He knows what it's like to struggle with temptation. 
He knows what sadness and fear and anger feels like. He knows what abuse and rejection and neglect feels like. He knows what physical abuse and sexual shame feels like. And the spirit of condemnation would try to keep us away from the throne of our Father. And friends, as we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about God's really angry with us and Jesus is nice. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That the Father himself loves you as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That God's every bit of demonstration of Jesus's love and approachability and relatability to you is that is saying, this is how God is. This is how God feels about you. This is how God feels about your life, your soul, your body. And the blood that poured out of his son at the cross has washed and cleansed us. And we can come before the throne. Let's stand. Let us enter by faith into this heavenly realm. And friends, as we press nearer to the throne of God, all of the shame, all of the unworthiness falls out, falls off in the presence of him who is light. We step on that Revelation 4 sea of glass and we see the elders, we see the multitudes and multitudes of angels crying out to the holiness and the beauty of God. And that we see before him who is like jasper and sardius stone, we see this one who dwells in unapproachable light, who in whom there is no sin, no darkness at all. That just as we start to feel like we don't belong here, that we look and behold, we see a lamb that had been slain. We see a man who has been the forerunner for us to come into the presence of the Father. So Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we can come boldly before your throne. And God, we declare and we confess that we need mercy today. We need grace to continue to walk in the spirit, to continue to resist sin and to submit to your heart and to your will.